As we come to chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, verse 1 is considered to be the hinge in this book, that we're changing from one thing to another. In the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with issues and problems that he was aware of, that people had told him about that were present there in Corinth. Beginning with chapter 7, he's going to answer questions that they have sent to him. You'll remember as we looked at the end of chapter 6, there was a principle there that we said summed up the first six chapters and also set the stage for chapter 7 to the very end of the book. And that principle was this, it is our responsibility to do what? To glorify God. Let's say that together. Glorify God. In whatever we're doing, whatever we're saying, we should be glorifying God. God. And that will be true for the subject matter that we are going to talk about here today in chapter 7. Now we're getting into a very practical section of the book that deals with nuts and bolts and Paul is not going to shy away from any questions that may have been sent to him. And I think it's important for us as a church to realize the church should be a place where questions are welcomed. We shouldn't be intimidated by questions. We should welcome those questions. There should actually be an unseen sign above the doors that say questions are welcome. So in the light of that, I want to say with the things that we're going to be covering here over the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about marriage, we're going to be talking about sex, Questions are welcome. If you have questions, send them in uh, to us in the office. We get enough questions, we'll do a roundtable and talk about these items. But Paul is going to deal very clearly and very plainly with the questions that have been sent to him. Now, as we come to chapter 7, it poses a or an interpretation problem for us. Because what we have is we have the answers that Paul gave, but we really don't have the questions that were being asked. It's sort of like listening to one side of a phone conversation. If you're in the room, you can hear what the person is saying into the phone, but you can't necessarily hear what the person on the other end of the line is saying. So we don't know what the questions were that were coming from the Corinthians, but we know what Paul's answers were to the questions they were asking. So I'm going to very uh, carefully venture some guesses this morning about what those questions were. And so there is a caution that we can't be overly dogmatic on certain things because we don't know what the question was that was being presented to Paul. Also, because we are talking about issues of marriage, sex, divorce, it's important for us to understand what marriage was like 
in the first century when the Apostle Paul was writing to those in Corinth. And actually in the Roman world at that time, there were four different types of marriages. First of all, we need to recognize that throughout the Roman Empire, there were tens and hundreds of thousands of slaves. So underneath that system, it was many of slaves that were coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The slaves, one type of marriage that was for them, was a marriage where their owners permitted them to live together and for them to be married. Now, that marriage could be ended at any time by the whim of the owner of the slaves, by selling off one of the slaves or by actually just ending the relationship. So that was one type of marriage. There was a second type of marriage that in the second type of marriage, slaves were allowed to live together for one year. They would come together as one, for one year. At the end of one year, they could decide whether they wanted to stay together as husband and wife, or they could separate, and they would not have been considered the marriage going on. So it could be ended that way once again with slaves. It could be ended at any time that the owner decided that for his benefit, the owner of the slaves could sell off one member, or the owner could say, I don't ha like how this is affecting things, so I'm bringing an end to that. There was a third type of marriage, and in the third type of marriage, it was the father selling his daughter to someone for marriage, and the daughter would have no say in it. He would just decide, hey, you pay me enough money you give me a big enough dowry and you can have my daughter as your wife. And then there was a fourth type of marriage that is much that was basically for those in the higher ups of society in Rome. And it was much like the marriages that we have today. Uh, there would be the husband and the wife coming together. They would have a marriage ceremony that would typically, and many elements of the modern day marriage ceremony would come from this type of marriage that existed in Rome. See, whereas a Jewish wedding would last seven days, the uh, Gentile wedding would either happen, happen during the day or it might happen in the evening. The two families would come together, there would be the equivalent of a maid or matron of honor, there would be a best man, the couple would get married, they would join. There was a ring and the ring was always put on the same finger. When the ceremony itself was over, they would go to another place where they would have a feast and enjoy cake. So many of the elements of the Roman way of getting married in its higher class has been carried over today. So with that type of setting, knowing that and knowing what was going on as far as the type of marriages that are there, 
the Apostle Paul is going to answer questions that were sent to him. And I think the first question that was sent to him was a very simple question, and I'm just going to pose it this way. What about sex? What about sex? Follow with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Now, considering the matters about which you wrote. See, Paul's saying, this is an answer to what you wrote to me about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right there's Paul's answer. Uh, I think the question was, speak to us about this issue of sex. Now, actually, as we approach the passage, the interpreter has a problem right there in verse 1, something he must determine. Notice he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... You see the, the next statement says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Is it, the problem is this, is that what the Apostle Paul is writing? Or is that a statement being made by those in Corinth? Remember last week when we looked at the passage, all things are lawful for me, we noticed that in the uh, ESV and many other translations, those are in quotation marks, meaning that's what the Corinthians were saying to Paul. It appears to be the same thing here. Even though commentators are divided on this, it would appear to me that what we have here are the Corinthians saying to Paul, it is a good thing for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. See, in Corinth, there were two different views that related to the body. We dealt with one of them last week. And the, that is the view that the body is basically evil. The soul and spirit are good, but the body is basically evil. So one view was, because the body is basically evil, you can do anything you want to with the body, as much as you want. And so in Corinth, there were those who, their response to the body being evil was we're going to commit as much sexual immorality as we want to because God made us sexual beings so we should just have loads of sex and the body is, is evil anyway so it doesn't matter what we do. And of course the Apostle Paul dealt with that issue and says no you're wrong in that. God forbid that you would take the liberty that he's given to us and use it in that fashion. Our liberty is not to be used for immorality. Now on the other hand, there were those in Corinth who decided that since the body is 
evil, we should deny the body pretty much of everything that's pleasurable for the body. So therefore, in the body, there should be no sexual activity. Even among those that are married, they were saying, you should not engage in sexual activity because the body is basically evil and you should deny all the impulses that the body might have. So I believe Paul is addressing that in this passage. And notice what he says in relation to this. He says this, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is saying God created us man and woman. Now I know that might be very controversial in our culture today, but it doesn't change the facts of what God says. God created men and he created women. He designed for men and women to be together. That is God's design. That is God's plan. So he says, because of temptation, and he's talking about if a man doesn't touch a woman, and the word there for touch refers to sexual intimacy, he says, if he doesn't do that, there is going to be temptation for him. And because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This is the design of God. And Satan is going to attack the design of God. If I could sum up Satan's plan when it comes to sex, Satan's plan is this. To get as many people that are not married to engage in as much sex as he can get them to engage in. And to those who are married, his plan is to keep them from having sexual relations with one another. And both of those things that are a part of Satan's plan, they are both equally wrong. Sex is a wonderful gift given by God to be exercised within the confines of marriage. But all sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful in God's sight. So he says, because of the way we're created, because of the way that we're made, each man should have his wife, each woman should have a husband. And then he talks about in verses 3 through 5 that within the marriage relationship, the husband and wife give up the control of their body to the other partner in the marriage relationship. I'd like to read those verses from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7. Verses, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. In the New Living Translation, and this is what it says. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. 
The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband is to give authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what is Paul saying there? That within the bonds of marriage, husbands and wives, you should enjoy as much sex as you want as long as it is consensual between the two of you. And husbands, you're to give up control of your body to your wife to meet her needs, and that's more than, hey, let's just jump in the sack here. It's more than that. It means meeting her emotional needs. It means being sensitive to what is going on with her. So husbands... You are to render your body control of it to the wife. And wife, you are to render control of your body to the husband. And Paul says you are, to, you are only to refrain from that when it's by consent of both of you. And that is to be for a limited time where you may spend time in prayer and perhaps in fasting, where you're going to take a period in which you're going to uh, say, hey, we're going to have a break from sexual relations so that we can really devote ourselves to prayer. Now, friends, I can tell you that based on counseling that I've done in my office, that some of you must have very powerful prayer lives. Because there are some of you, husbands and wives, that haven't had sexual relations in years. And if you're going to tell me your walk with the Lord is okay, that means for years you have really been praying day and night. Because that's the only exception that the Apostle Paul is giving to you for you to take a break from sexual relations with your mate. Do you get that? This isn't me saying that. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And remember, our goal is to glorify God. See, Paul is saying, husbands, you're not to deprive your wife. Wives, you're not to deprive your husband. This is not to be used as a bargaining chip in your marriage. The word deprive means to rob the other one. Within the confines of marriage, God's beautiful plan is for husbands and wives to have physical sexual relations on a regular basis. So that's his answer about what about sex. Beginning in verse 6, I believe he's dealing with another question. And in verses 6 through 9, he's dealing with the question, what about the unmarried? So, you know, he's just saying, hey, God created us this way. Well, what about the unmarried? What, what about those who aren't married? You say that sex is good within marriage. Well, what about those who aren't married? 
Look at verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command. Please notice that there. Paul is saying, I'm not commanding this. This is a concession that I am making. I wish that all were as I myself am. At this point in his life, it appears very clearly from other passages of Scripture that the Apostle Paul is single. Uh, many commentators would believe that at one point Paul was married, maybe before his conversion. Uh, many would think that maybe Paul's wife had passed away and that he is a widower. Uh, some think that maybe Paul's wife left him after he became converted. We, we don't know that. The scriptures don't reveal that to us. Paul talks as someone who has intimate knowledge about the marriage relationship. It is believed that Paul was at one time a member of the Sanhedrin, and to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. But Paul is obviously single at this time. And he says, I'm saying this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. God gives to each of us a gift in this area. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He says, it's good for you if you're unmarried and if you're single, it's good for you to remain single. Now, that doesn't mean it is better for you to remain single. He's saying it's good to be married. It's also good to be single. There is nothing wrong if God is giving you a gift of singleness. There's nothing wrong with you. And sometimes those of us who are married, we seem to act as if there's something wrong with a person who is not married. There's nothing wrong with them. It is good for them to be single, just as it is good for those who are married to be married. So Paul is, is saying to those, in this particular culture, the Romans would look down on any young man that was over 20 years old and wasn't married. They would think, what's wrong with this guy? There has to be something wrong with him. If he's reached 21 and he hasn't found a wife, what is wrong with him? That's the wrong way of thinking. It's good to be single. Paul says, I wish you were as I am. I am single, and that is good. He also goes on and says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what about the unmarried? If you are content in your singleness, if God has given you that gift, if you are widowed and you are content in that situation, then don't go out and seek. Someone. This is a gift from God. It is good for you to be in that situation. But if you are not content, and if you, and I'm just going to use Paul's language literally in the Greek, Paul's language is if you are burning up, if you are burning up with passion, 
If you are wrestling with the issue of lust in your life, then you need to seek out a husband or wife. Now, let me say something, because some have twisted Paul's wording here. Paul is not saying that the only reason that you get married to someone is because you have all kinds of of sexual passion. That is a very poor reason to build a marriage up. And may I predict to you, if that is the only reason for which you get married, you're headed for problems. Well, Paul will tell us anybody that gets married will have trouble. See, sometimes people come into my office and they say, man, we've got trouble in our marriage. I said, okay, you brought it on yourself. You got married. (laughs) Paul says anyone that gets married is going to have trouble. So uh, one way to avoid the trouble is not to get married. Those who are single, Paul will argue for them, and we'll be looking at this later. Paul will argue for them. They just need to be concerned about what the Lord wants. When you're married, you have your spouse to be concerned about too. So that is sometimes going to bring conflict into the marriage relationship. But Paul is, is making it clear. It's good to be married. It's good to be unmarried. One is not better than the other. God has given to each their gift. Well, then that brings us into the question, well, what about separation and divorce? Remember, once again, we don't have the questions they sent. I'm just trying to theorize on hearing Paul's side of the conversation what the person on the other end, those in Corinth, were asking about. And they're asking, Paul is answering those about the issue of separation and divorce. Follow with me, beginning with verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Paul says, okay, I told you about my opinion before. Now I'm telling you, this comes from the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. This comes directly from the Lord. This is the Lord's teaching. In the other cases, Paul may say, I'm now giving you something that doesn't come from the Lord. We'll see that later on in the passage. It doesn't make it any less important. But this is directly from the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Let's stop right there. The wife should not separate from her husband. That's just a straight out command that is given there in the scripture. And now I want to talk about something just briefly because it it, uh, reflects upon our culture today. In our culture today, we have what is called separation and we have divorce. Two separate things. You can be legally separated and yet not divorced. That did not exist in the time that this is written. To be separated was to be divorced. And so Paul is saying, a wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, don't miss that. But if 
She does. Paul is saying as a general principle, a wife should not separate from her husband, and a husband should not separate from his wife. But if she does, if she finds the situation so intolerable that she cannot remain within the situation, he gives these instructions. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So what about separation and divorce? Paul says, wife, you should not separate from your husband. You should not divorce your husband. Husband, you should not divorce your wife. But if you do, you have only one of two options. And so I'm going to say this is very hard. And this is not accepted very well in our culture today. If she does, Paul says, she must either remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Right? You shouldn't separate, but because of sin and other things, you may. And if you do, your only two options are to remain single or be reconciled back to your husband. Now, that doesn't play very well in today's culture. That doesn't play very well when people are dating even before they're divorced. But if there is no clear-cut biblical reason for the divorce, then there is not permission to get remarried. Now, we'll talk in a moment about those exceptions to that. It appalls me church, that we have situations where someone separates from their spouse and they're dating within a week after that. It appalls me when someone who has separated or is divorced and they start dating someone and everybody in the church is saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? She finally found someone who will love her and care for her, and nobody stops to ask the question, does she have biblical permission to get remarried? We need to, to pause on that and ask that question before we're so happy about them getting together. Now, the Apostle Paul says in the passage that he is speaking to what the Lord has already addressed. In two different places in the Gospels, at least two different places, Jesus dealt with the issue of divorce. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 32, he says this, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits 
adultery. All right, so what's Jesus saying? That anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, if he gets remarried, makes his future spouse commit adultery. Jesus also addresses this in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 9. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, unless you divorce for the reason of sexual immorality, and the word used for sexual immorality is a broad word that covers all kinds of sexual immorality. Unless you divorce for that reason, if you remarry, you commit adultery, and you cause the person who marries you to commit adultery. That's what Jesus said. This is hard. I mean, it was so hard that his disciples then said, who in the world should get married? Why would anyone get married if this is what the standard is? So Paul, in dealing with this issue of separation and divorce, is laying down that God's plan is for marriage to be a lifelong relationship between a husband and wife, and it should not end in divorce. Now, in the culture to which he was writing, divorce was very simple and easy, even easier than it is in our culture. You know, in our culture, at least you have to go to the courts and get something. In that culture, all they had to do is call some witnesses together, either one of them, the husband or the wife, call some witnesses together and say, I'm divorcing him. Or I'm divorcing her. And that ended the marriage. And it was over with. So Paul is dealing with a culture in which divorce was very pervasive. And he's warning them that God's design is not for divorce. God's design is for marriages to last. But if they don't, if one does separate, if one does divorce, unless it is for sexual immorality, they are not free to remarry. That's how Paul is addressing this particular situation. Now he's going to deal with another situation and allow another permission there for divorce and separation. And the next question that I think is addressed in verses 12 to 16 is, what about the unequally yoked? What about the unequally yoked? Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. What Paul is saying there is not that this is just my opinion and it doesn't need to be followed. What Paul is saying, I'm addressing something now that Jesus never addressed while he was here on earth. We don't have any record whatsoever of Jesus addressing the situation that we, we are finding that Paul is addressing here. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, 
and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay, very clearly, you got the situation. You have a wife, and you have who is an unbeliever, and the husband is a believer. I think the, the situation is such, he became a believer after they were married. He says he should not divorce his wife as long as she is content to live with him. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what about the unequally yoked together? What about a marriage where we have a believer and an unbeliever? Now, first of all, for those of you who are unmarried, or for those of you who are widows or widowers, you have permission to get married, but only in the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 makes that very clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Believers and unbelievers have two different sets of values. And through years of experience, let me speak to those of you who are single. And you're dating someone who is not a believer. Save yourself a world of heartache and break that relationship right now. I don't care how wonderful the person seems to be. I don't care how much you think they are a perfect match for you. If you are a believer and they are an unbeliever, you have so much that is not in common with one another that it can't help but cause problems within your marriage relationship. And let me add this because this is a new twist on things that's going on. A believer purposely marries an unbeliever with the thought pattern that, well, you know, I'll try it out, and if it doesn't work, I'll just get rid of him then. Because Paul gives us permission to do that. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. If you go into the marriage knowing you are disobeying the Lord, you must live within the situation that you've placed yourself. Do not, do not, believers, I plead with you, marry someone who doesn't know the Lord as their Savior. It will cause you 
all kinds of grief. But sometimes, couples, both of them are unbelievers, and one of them gets saved, and the other is not saved. And Paul is dealing with that situation here. And he's saying to the believer, as long as your spouse, even though they're an unbeliever, is content to live with you, then you need to stay with them. It goes both ways for husband and wife. But... If the unbeliever says, I want out of this marriage, I'm gone, I'm not going to uh, put up with this Christianity stuff, if they want to go, then let them go. In that case, you are free, and it's okay to just let them go. Paul says you're not under bondage then. And then Paul lays out a principle that I don't want you to miss. At the end of verse 15, to where Paul says, God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. Husbands and wives, the principle of God for your marriage is that your home should be a place of peace. For all of us, our homes are to be a place of of peace. They're not to be a place where husband and wife are warring and fighting all the time. It's not to be a place of conflict going on all the time. It is to be a place where husbands and wives live together in peace with one another and give an example to their children of what the Christian life should look like. See, Paul talks about even in the principle where you have a saved person and an unsaved person, they should stay together for the bed. The believer should stay if she can or if he can for the benefit of the children and for the benefit of the spouse because you are a testimony that you set them apart. That's what it means to be holy. It doesn't mean they're saved, but it means you are setting them apart. So if you're lost and you're, or if you're saved and your husband is lost, you are setting him apart. You are being a Christian witness to him. Husband, if you're saved and your wife is lost, you are to be a witness to them. And you are to live together in harmony and in peace. And if there are children, and children are the victims in most divorces. If they are children, they are set apart by the believer who is there in the marriage. So, stay together as long as the unbeliever is willing to stay with you. So let's wrap this up this morning. Very practical message that, that hits home for all of us. Marriage is to be a lifelong commitment. There are only two grounds laid out in the scriptures for divorce and remarriage. That is because of sexual immorality and that is because of abandonment, a believer being abandoned by the unbeliever. Other than that, you're to remain together. But if you can't, your only options are be reconciled 
or remain single. But in all of this, wherever we find ourselves, what do we do? What is our goal? What are we supposed to do? Say that again with me. Glorify God. And we need to ask the question in all of our actions, is this glorifying to God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even though its teachings are hard at times, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would help us that we might be obedient to your word. And Father, now as we prepare our hearts for a time of communion and remembering the sacrifice that you made for us so that we could be saved, we pray that we might search our hearts and that we might honor you in worship as we partake of this table. In Jesus' name, amen.